chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Welcome back, everybody. We are into November, and this month, I'm taking the reins as the professor. Sorry, Janelle, you'll have to take a back seat. (laughs) I get to be a student. This is the best. So this month, we are going to be talking about the golden age of Hollywood and getting into some real classics. So I I hope you are excited, as excited as I am. Janelle, are you looking forward to this? I am. I am definitely a secret early Hollywood buff, actually. I tend to like the 1890 to 1940 era of Hollywood more than I like the following 60 years. So I'm pretty excited. Guys, Janelle's not like other girls. I'm not like other girls. I love (laughs) silent movies. Well, we haven't gone back quite that far. Um, But (laughs) this, this week, we are going to be taking a journey all the way back to just before the uh the true beginning of the Hayes code so strap in folks because we're going back to 1934 that's right and we're kicking it off with what some people say is the first rom-com on film arguments have been made for this it happened one night um so here's your google summary In director Frank Capra's acclaimed romantic comedy spoiled heiress Ellie Andrews played by Claudette Colbert impetuously marries the scheming King Wesley, leading her tycoon father, played by Walter Connolly, to spirit her away on his yacht. After jumping ship, Ellie falls in with cynical newspaper reporter Peter Warren, played by Clark Gable, who offers to help her reunite with her husband in exchange for an exclusive story. But during their travels, the reporter finds himself falling for the feisty young heiress. Well, Eliza, I think you get to ask the question this week. <laughs> well, yeah, Janelle, that's what Google says this movie is about. But what do you think this movie is about? Eliza, I think there's two things going on in this film that I, I find fascinating that really speak to its moment in history. And that is um, a dual obsession in American culture during the Depression. Uh, the first being an obsession with uh, the mass media, which was a new uh, a new thing then. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the idea of having an expansive knowledge of what's going on across the country and being able to literally cross that country by bus. Um, But it also reflects an obsession in America at the time with the fallout of the quote unquote new woman in the 1920s. Um, So we're we're reconciling how to deal with the modern American woman and all of her uh, what Clark Gable calls brattiness. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, The character of Ellie is a really interesting one because I think that, especially for this time, she is surprisingly nuanced. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I don't want to say surprisingly in order to imply that movies back then were simple or didn't, you know, ever have complex characters or complex female characters. But this character in particular is comprised of several tropes that normally you wouldn't necessarily see together. Um, And I think that in what could have been a very one note part, you actually get a lot going on here because she is an heiress. And so you have the understandable interest from the thirties in the wealthy elite, because of course it's the depression. And so you don't have a lot of people who have money. So the idea of anyone existing in this world with money is interesting. You have the idea of the sort of snarky modern woman who don't need no man 
Um, which, you know, you get a lot in classic Hollywood, especially a few years later into the 40s. You know, you get the Katherine Hepburn types. And even at this point, you have, you know, Betty Davis and that kind of stuff. But they're not always, you know, if someone's really going to be the kind of woman who can, like, get down and dirty and, and make things happen, she's not necessarily going to be an heiress because you're going to expect it to be someone who has some more practical skills. So, you know, this character of Ellie, she's got a couple different things going for her, but she's also quite young and naive. Well being sort of snarky and above it all. So it's there's a lot happening. And I definitely think it reflects the interests of the time. Yeah, I, I think I was really the most interested in this film and thinking about what was happening around it, about how, you know, you have the contrast between Ellie as this glamorous, and I mean so glamorous, like Claudette Colbert looks like, I don't even know, she looks like a doll. She literally, mm -hmm. the way that they lit films during this period was just so gorgeous. And then you contrast that against Clark Gable's, you know, scrappy, lovable ne'er-do-well. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it, it just really um, expressed to me this, this sense of escapism that was happening at the time where movies served this very particular purpose. And rom-coms in particular, I think, served this purpose of like entertaining people, reassuring them that something good was going to happen in the end, but also giving them something kind of glamorous to aspire to at the same time. It really bridges that gap between like aspirational and relatable. Sure. Absolutely. Right. Cause you've got this character who is a, you know, a wealthy woman and even the male character, you know, he's a, a successful reporter, although, you know, he's, he's a little down on his luck, but he's clearly smart and capable and, you know, has a job he can keep going back to. But you see them in a moment where they're very down on their luck and they've had their money stolen and they're, you know, in the middle of nowhere trying to get back to New York. So you get both the aspirational escapist part of wouldn't it be nice to be a wealthy heiress and the relatable part of, oh, yeah, I've been stuck on the road with no idea where to go. It also is interesting because, you know, movies at this time, as you said, were so much about escapism. And this is literally about someone who is trying to escape. Ah, so true. Yeah, you know, she at the beginning of the movie is trying to run away from her father. She and her husband, although I think probably boyfriend is the better term at this point, have, it seems, gotten essentially like a courthouse marriage. And her mm -hmm. father has taken her away and is trying to force her to get an annulment and she runs away from him in order to run back to her would-be husband but it also seems that she's just trying to run away from the oppressive nature of her life yeah but that's the interesting thing about the gender politics in this movie and of course you know unlike every other film we've talked about so far except for maybe white christmas we're talking about like a radically different time of gender mm -hmm. politics we're talking about like pre-mainstream feminism so one of the things that's interesting about Ellie's plot is that she leaves the oppression of her father's household only to pretty much immediately fall directly into the arms of <laughs> Warren, who acts like her daddy. Yes. And I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that, especially if you don't have money, which she doesn't because her money gets stolen early on, traveling as a woman alone would be difficult and possibly dangerous at this time. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a certain level of practicality to it is easier for her once she has a man who is with her. Um, now he adopts a very patronizing stance in his reaction to her and his handling of her, especially early on. But just from a, a purely practical standpoint, he is a man of the world who understands that this young woman who clearly doesn't know as much about the world is about to get herself in trouble if he doesn't step up and keep an eye on her. Not that I'm defending this attitude, but I, I do think that a little context is helpful. 
It is. I think it's just, it's disconcerting, I think, from our vantage point to look back on the film and see that as this just like sort of, the film looks at Ellie as like, oh, you silly woman. You mm-hmm. thought you were going to get away with this traveling by yourself by bus. Like, what a ridiculous notion. Right. Um, and, and on some level, you're right, that practically at this time, it would have been very difficult for Ellie to get access to money on her own, especially since it seems that she can't access the money that I assume is owed to her via her father's wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, the movie goes out of its way to ensure that she can't survive without him. Mm-hmm. without Warren because they very early on like you said her bag gets stolen and then later on whoops she clumsily leaves her bus ticket on the <laughs> bus um so it's it's really interesting to look back and see these like early seeds of what would later become kind of generic standards for rom-coms that mm-hmm. like here it's so clear that they're doing it to show that she like you said in this context is helpless without a man like can't get by so it's interesting to think, like, why is that same trope showing up 50 and 60 years later in these rom-coms in the 80s and 90s where women are, quote unquote, clumsy right. as a way to show us that they can't really get along without a man? Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I think that we get even more of these tropes happening beyond just sort of the clumsy woman or the forgetful woman. You know, there's a lot of um, travel rom-coms. It's almost sort of its own mm. its own subgenre. And frequently the male and female leads fall into these two roles in those. And you can look at anything from like chasing Liberty to Anastasia. Right. And (laughs) I mean, any of those things, the man is always the one who has the street smarts and the woman's always the one who assumes she'll be able to handle it. And then, gets into a sticky situation where she has to be rescued. You even get this in Twilight. I mean, this is a thing that happens over and over again in our current age. And I think it's easy to look at this old movie and say like, "Ugh, it's so gross how they felt like the man had to save the woman as if we don't do that in every movie and every book today. Right. We haven't let go of that trope at all. And uh, this is, I'll probably get into a deep dive here. So sorry, everyone. But this is actually, funnily enough, directly related to some of the stuff I'm working on with my doctoral research is that, um, well, let's start at the beginning. So one of the reasons why I love film, why I love film from this period and earlier is that it has so much to owe. um, Because of course, film, much of it uh, comes out of the world of theater initially. Um, And one of the things that film takes from theater early on is the archetype of the damsel in distress, which comes to us from the melodrama, uh, which emerges in the 1820s and 1830s. And I think that what I found interesting as I'm researching these things really in depth in the American and British context is that in some ways, Ellie, not directly because she's a comedic figure, but in the more like dramatic moments where, you know, she's kind of in peril when there's a guy creeping on her, when she loses her bag, um, we really do see shades of that very dramatic character. And that character at times has been problematic for a variety of reasons, most of which is that she serves this kind of like racializing role for white women to show that white women are always endangered in their rep- in, as they are represented, right, in media. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is something that I was both surprised and, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say dismayed, but it really put together some connections for me uh, with the kind of long legacy of the rom-com heroine in earlier forms of media. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as we've said, this is really one of the first rom-coms in the sense that we think of it now. There certainly were romantic and comedic movies that had come before this, but the very formulaic 
um, type of movie that we are always talking about here on this podcast really begins with It Happened One Night. And so much of those dynamics that we now just understand and read immediately when they appear on screen were really solidified right at this time in this movie and in other movies right around the same time period. And in some ways, like, I don't hate that. Like, the things that I dislike about it are all the things that we've talked about. But there are some things that I really like that I was surprised to see in their character dynamic. Like, for Mm -hmm. example, Eliza, what did you think about the wall of Jericho scene? (laughs) Well, um, let's take this back for a second as well and talk about the fact that there is a surprising level of... um, consent politics happening in this movie Mm -hmm. but part Mm -hmm. of that is in fact because of the actress herself claudette colbert was uncomfortable with some of the things that they were asking her to do like undressing on screen and in fact in the rather infamous scene where she flashes her leg in order to get someone to pull over and give them a ride she originally wasn't willing to do it until they brought in essentially a body double and then she was like no i don't want people to think that's my leg this is my leg i'll do it um (laughs) But, you know, she clearly wanted her character to be a little more subdued, a little less, you know, flaunting it and putting it out there. And so they came up with the solution of having this wall of Jericho, which is they continually hang a blanket between the two of them every night as they stay in various hotels on the side of the road so that they won't see each other while they get dressed, while they sleep. And then it becomes the sort of recurring joke. And in the end of the movie, spoiler alert for anyone who's planning on watching it, Uh, There is a cheeky moment where it's right after they've been married and they take the wall down. (laughs) Trumpet at all. So it becomes this whole part of the movie, um, but it wasn't the original idea. And so just the woman having her own input then created this entire rather important part of the plot. Well, and it also, I imagine, uh, well, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that it facilitated this, but I would say that it adds a special, like, flavor to the fact that once they hang the wall of Jericho, for people who haven't seen this, which I imagine is a lot of people, uh, Clark Gable uh, starts to undress um, as a way to sort of uh, push Ellie to the other side of the wall of Jericho. <laughs> but what results in that is a very slow and pretty sensual undressing. Uh, including, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Warren, Clark Gable's character, unbuttoning his shirt and there being no undershirt underneath, which was, again, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a set issue because Clark Gable couldn't take off his undershirt, not in an awkward way. So um, theoretically, the rumor is that he ruined undershirts forever, but that's <laughs> another topic for another podcast. At any rate, what is amazing about that scene is you get to see Ellie really, like, take in Warren as a sexual being. Uh, mm-hmm. So you, so it's a, it is again like practicing this consent politics, but it's also a moment where we're getting the female gaze. Absolutely. Well, and I think as happens in a couple different places in this movie, and as happens quite frequently in Hollywood in general, certain things that become really powerful and really sort of become the golden standard kind of happen by accident, and it just works so well that then other people pick up on it. And I think that one of the reasons this really begins what we know as the rom com is that. There is a real tension between the sexuality and the flirting and the disagreements between these two characters. And early on, you see that they are both attracted to each other, but trying to fight it for various reasons. And it works pretty effectively. And so, you know, whether that came about because the director really had an idea that this is what he wanted to show or because of some of those tensions that inherently existed behind the scenes, it does create something that 
really is kind of electric. Yeah, and I think that that I think that there's an interesting thing that goes on with people looking back at films from this period, and they're always a little bit surprised by how sexual and adult they are. But mm-hmm. that has to do, of course, with the fact that they're pre Hays Code. Ah, um, uh, yes. And I'm wondering if we can dive into that, Eliza. Can you tell anyone who's not uh, familiar with it what the Hays Code is? Or was? absolutely. Um, we're probably going to get into this more in the next few weeks when we will be talking about Hays Code movies. But just to give you a little sample the Hayes code was a um a set of morality guidelines essentially for hollywood productions um from the 30s up into the 60s it was first put in place i believe in 1930 but was not actively enforced until mid 1934 which means that this movie which came out in the beginning of 1934, did not have to follow Hayes Code rules. It also then stopped being actively enforced in the late 50s, and although it was technically still in place um, until the mid-60s, it really was being largely ignored by then. The Hayes Code is different from the like um, movie rating system that we have now or similar things to it because it wasn't just a list of specific things you could or couldn't do. It wasn't just like, you can't say the F word, you can show a boob but not a nipple it was broader than that in that it dealt with broader like swatches of morality and it has some rules that are now very laughable and are often sort of memed and some that are just sort of surprisingly strange it you know has things that you would expect like you couldn't portray homosexuality or depravity of any kind uh whatever that means but it also had rules governing any reference to sex or sexual activity, which is why all of the movies and TV shows at that time, married couples sleep in two single beds because you couldn't imply that they were sleeping in one bed. You couldn't reference or show pregnancy because that implies that you'd had sex. Some of the other things is that you could not portray crime or immorality of any kind in a positive light so bad guys could not be morally gray and they had to be punished by the end of the movie the only exceptions to these kind of things were movies that had a historical basis which is one of the reasons why westerns become so big at the time because you can show things like the good guy seeking revenge or a shootout in the middle of the street which you wouldn't have been able to show at the time um, in a modern movie Um, which is why early on you actually don't get that many gangster movies, and then you start getting more gangster movies in the 40s and 50s, and they're placed in the 20s or the 30s. So it was something that all of the Hollywood studios were fighting against and dancing around for many years, and meant that there was a lot that you couldn't portray. The thing about It Happened One Night in the Hays Code that is so intriguing to me is that on a first glance, you wouldn't look at this movie and think like, wow, this is so loose with its depravity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's flouting of morals. (laughs) But it really goes to show how uh, restrictive the Hayes Code ended up being when it was enforced, because uh, certain plot elements that are in this film would not have been allowed just a few months later. For example, the fact that Ellie is married to someone else and is actively flirting with and pursuing a man, Mm -hmm. that they're making sexual advances and innuendos towards each other outside of the confines of marriage. Absolutely. Um, That would never have been allowed just six months later. 
And uh, Warren even makes a sort of a, a little bit of a gangster style threat to uh, one of the sniveling uh, in like, uh, what's the word I want to use here? Intervening characters, which makes him mm-hmm. kind of morally gray in a way that you're not going to see again for a couple of decades, except for, like you said, in Westerns and uh, mobster movies. So it's intriguing to think about those little details. Absolutely. You also get like a scene where he literally steals a car. Um, and he steals it from someone who swindled them out of some of their money, but he does steal a car from a man and then they just take it and drive off and there's no more question about it. Um, and again, with the wall of Jericho conversation that keeps happening with this blanket hung between them, they're making overt references to the concept that if it weren't there, sex might be happening or sexual moments might be happening. She sees him without a shirt on. And then the camera shows him a second time as he's undressing, this time on the other side of the um, blanket. But the camera sees him completely shirtless, and you wouldn't see that again for quite in the right context, such as a swimming scene. And because of that, there is a lot of Hmm. wink-wink, nudge-nudge references to sex. Yeah, and I think that those are the moments that I like the most in this movie that fe- that I feel most at home with uh, in their romance. You know, those are the moments where I really felt like, wow, this is like actually genuinely sensual in a way that a lot of mm-hmm. rom-coms actually aren't, frankly. Rom-coms are not, in my opinion, most rom-coms do not tend to actually be sexy. And there are moments mm-hmm. in It Happened One Night that are sexy. I will say that you can tell that this is an earlier rom-com and is still in the time period when Hollywood is trying to figure out how to use the medium of film because there are some pretty large jumps in tone within individual scenes. And there are moments Mm -hmm. where they're being sexy and they're being flirty and then something sets them off and they jump into a fight, but the fight gets very aggressive very quickly in a way that to our modern sensibility is quite jarring and often quite misogynistic. And I think that those are the moments when watching this movie today you're sort of beginning to get the flirty banter and sense the you know the sexual tension that's going on and then suddenly he makes some diminishing comment about how she's just some little woman or she insults him and he slaps her and it's very jarring to our sensibilities to have that sudden jump and part of it is the different understanding of men and female relationships but part of it is also the filmmakers playing around with what they can do on screen. Yeah, I think that it it really makes me think about what a disservice, I mean, of course, that the Hayes Code did to women in particular um, Mm -hmm. after this point, because without that sexual tension, then the kind of demeaning behavior, the spanking, the literal spanking, takes on this like very... um, very straightforwardly misogynistic tone of like discipline. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think with the banter, you can at least make the play for like, ah, it's, you know, it's a bit of like sexual foreplay. It's even maybe a little bit of like Mm -hmm. kink play in its own way. Right. But I, I think when you are not allowed to make those suggestive sexual comments, then yes, you're just left with this um, quote, lovable scoundrel Clark Gable calling a woman a brat and saying she couldn't get by without him spanking her. Mm -hmm. And essentially sort of mildly kidnapping her for his own material gain. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, They're also, I think it's worth talking about the banter because that is one of the ways that at this time and even forward during the Hays Code period, the women are able to regain some of the power in these relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you see this time and time and again with 
actresses like Katherine Hepburn, um, where they're, the parts they play are written to be very smart and very sharp-tongued. Um, and those are the moments in this movie where the power dynamic between them doesn't feel quite as icky, I guess, yeah. because both of the characters are looking at the other one thinking, oh my god, they are so dumb. Thank God I'm not that dumb. You know, and so he is being quite patronizing to her, but she does the same to him several times. He, you know, goes off about his various philosophies about the world, and he knows how to do this, and he knows how to do that, and she's just standing behind him laughing, knowing it's not going to work. And so that does give her a little bit of power back, even within this story structure where they've made it clear that she needs him to survive. And I think that that's one of the things from this movie that really got picked up and pulled forward into what was to follow. Yeah, I was very envious of some of Ellie's lines. Like, I think my favorite was when she was uh, talking to the guy on the bus who was coming on to her, who's, who had a great name that I can't recall at this time. I want to say his name was like Shaughnessy or something like that. Something like that. You know, mm. but anyway, he, she he's coming on to her and uh, he's going on and on and on and on and has not given her a chance to utter one solitary word. And once he does give her a break, she just says, I just find you terribly boring, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, it's not even clever. It's just like so good. It's just like you just want to say that to every man who tells you to smile. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. no, I just find you terribly boring. <laughs> well, even at the start of the film, when she's arguing with her father, he says something about she's always been a stubborn idiot. And she says, well, I come from a long line of stubborn idiots, which, mm -hmm. you know, is quite a statement to say to your father. Um, yes. You know, so it's established early on that maybe she's naive, but she's not unintelligent. Um, and in fact, force of will maybe is one of her downfalls, but ultimately it it doesn't hurt her. It, it does give her some of the power back and allow her to make her way through the story. Well, and I, I, one of the cool sort of like subtle legacies that is on display in this movie, as I was saying before, there's a lot of like, uh, like a lot of earlier films, there's a lot of um, references to theater and theater practices in these films. Mm -hmm. And one of the places where I think that uh, the women of the 1930s who were especially quippy um, got some of their banter strategies was from the world of burlesque, where banter had been part of the performance strategy since the 1870s or so, mm -hmm. where, you know, you're actively being sort of romanticized and sexualized, but you're giving it back as good as you get, if not better. Uh, and, and I think you also see these kind of like stage practices elsewhere in the film. Like there's that great moment where they start singing on the bus. Um, I'm flying high on the flying trapeze. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got that vaudeville feeling. I think those those moments to me are just really um, joyous. And they just maybe it's because all the theaters are locked down right now. But I was just, <laughs> you know, I was I was really waxing poetic about what theater has given uh, film in, in really cool ways. And I think that the. The romantic comedy, you know, uh, witty go and get them girl dialogue is one of mm -hmm. those gifts. Oh, absolutely. Um, so many of the movies from this time are essentially just vaudeville acts that have now been put onto screen. And mm -hmm. that becomes a little more nuanced as time goes on. And again, the, the um, Hollywood filmmakers figure out how to best fit the medium. But you do get these scenes where just suddenly there's a musical number. Suddenly everyone's mm -hmm. dancing. And it is very theater-like because that's where it comes from. And a lot of the actors, even up through the 40s in Hollywood, began on stage either in vaudeville or even in burlesque, um, which is one of the reasons why Hollywood started to get a reputation for being a little amoral and the Hays Code had mm -hmm. to be 
um, instilled in the first place, but they do bring those talents and those sensibilities to the screen. And especially right now, it is kind of fun to see. Yeah, it makes my heart happy. Um, Eliza, I have a question for you as a film person. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realize that It Happened One Night was the first movie uh, since the inception of the Academy Awards to do the clean sweep, what's called the clean sweep. Best picture, best actor, best actress, best director, and best screenplay, I think. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. Movie, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. It's only happened three times. The other two were The Silence of the Lambs and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right? So it's sort of, (laughs) it surprised me that a rom-com was the first to sweep those categories, especially now that we we think of the Oscars as being about these like serious achievements in art. And we think of rom-coms as not serious achievements in art. So I guess as a film person, what I'm what I'm wondering is, why do you think it is about this film that like captured the Hollywood establishment when it came out? You know, I'm not entirely sure. And the you know the history of the Oscars is a complex topic that you know anyone who's followed a hashtag the night after the Oscars can tell you, because um, it is very, it all is wrapped up in the internal poly- politics of um the you know the industry but good performances do tend to help something win and they also tend to help something win across the board and the performances in this are really good and they're sharp and i think at this point both uh clark gable and claudette colbert had been in a lot of movies and had refined those acting skills for the camera um and you can really see that in the way the movie works. I also think it was a, um, a genre type that they had not seen before. Like I said, this really invents mm. the, the travel movie and the travel rom-com in particular. And so this idea of two characters needing to get to a destination and what is the journey that they take personally over the course of their physical journey is obviously a type that people are drawn to time and time again, you know, whether that's stagecoach in the Westerns world or Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, Mm. or, you know, whatever it is, that is something that works so well thematically. And to have not really seen a movie do that before, I'm sure was quite exciting for its audiences. It also is, as often happens, one of those movies that didn't do that well in the box office early on. And then when it was re-released, word of mouth had spread and suddenly everyone wanted to go see it. So I think there was a lot of excitement around it and a lot of buzz um, in the 1930s, especially that, you know, the whole sort of chatty buzz about movies and how that could really make or break a film really started to be harnessed by Hollywood because people wanted exciting things to talk about and the escapism was so important. And, you know, this is a movie that really plays with that escapism. It leads. It has a happy ending. So it's it's got a lot of things going for it, but it is very unusual for something like this to win at the Oscars. Right. And it and to all those points, like, it made me start to think about what... How, how this film could establish the rom-com and establish it as, like, something that people enjoy, that they like, that can be really well-made, as you pointed out. Like, one of the things that makes this film work is that it's just really well-made, and it was, at the time, something new. And it, it makes me think about both, like, what is the future of rom-coms? Like, is there going to be a future where there are gonna, there's going to be the, quote-unquote, like, well-made rom-com again? Mm-hmm. Um or have we passed that in the era of movies that we're going to be talking about this month? 
And then it also makes me think about how much we take these like sort of genre conventions for granted. Like as an artist, I keep thinking about how like, wow, like someone worked really hard on the screenplay to come up with these bits and these moments that now mm-hmm. we think of as being so cringeworthy because we've just seen them <laughs> right. a million times. And somebody won a fucking Oscar for those cliches, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, considering how many times they've been reworked and represented, I guess maybe it's good that they won for that because clearly they did something that stuck with us. That being said, I also think that in taking a lot of those tropes for granted, we also don't always think about the fact that these presentations of male and female are so based in these early depictions of them from the 30s and the 40s. And we still just say like, yeah, that's what rom-coms are like. And it's so not representative necessarily of how we actually think about male-female interactions in the modern day. But in the genre and the medium of a romantic comedy, we accept it. That's so true. Like, I wonder what a rom-com in 2020 would look like if it really took like an honest, clear-eyed look at what romantic relationships are like now. I just feel mm-hmm. like somehow rom-coms got away from that idea. Like, it's not, it's not, it's not about capturing what a romance looks like. It, it's about repeating the genre tropes on some mm-hmm. level. And this trope of the man having to educate the woman or bring the woman down off of her high horse is still used so often, even in really great rom-coms from the last few years. You know, even if you look at something like Always Be My Baby or Always Be My Maybe or something like that, you know, she's maybe not wealthy because she's an heiress, but she's wealthy because she's a successful businesswoman. And he's Mm -hmm. the one who reminds her how to enjoy life, Mm -hmm. you know, and like things like that, like those, it's all the same story over and over again. Um, And it fits so well into the narrative that we just accept it. And maybe we shouldn't. Or maybe we should. I don't know. Maybe there's something about it that inherently we are drawn to. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the push and pull of art sometimes is like, like leaning on the things that you know that are legible that you can understand while at the same time, like pushing and trying for something different that maybe Mm -hmm. feels a little uncomfortable, but maybe it's going to accomplish something. Like I'm sure the wall of Jericho scene for people watching this movie in 1934 was a little bit titillating. It was a little bit like, Oh Mm -hmm. no, they're not married. They shouldn't sleep together in the same (laughs) room, but it works. It works. It strikes a chord and it works. And I think artists always have to push themselves to find those moments. So rom-com screenwriters get to work. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I feel like that is a good place to wrap up our uh, discussion of it happened one night. It did. (laughs) (laughs) Did it? Because technically the movie takes place over about four days. for it happened one night uh we want to thank our romantic leads on patreon as always and they are esther bob ian and trey we love you so much that's all and if you want to support us you can check us out on patreon or just follow us on all of our social media we love hearing from our listeners interact with us give us a like comment what you thought of this movie if you've seen it or what other movies you like watching from this earlier period let us know we love hearing from you Neither one of us was really quite sure whether we wanted to offer an antidote or a supplement to It Happened One Night. So in lieu of me having a good answer to that question, I'm going to pitch it over to you. Eliza, <laughs> what are your antidotes for It Happened One Night? All right. Well, um, first of all, I was you know trying to think of some of my favorite bickering couples in mm. movie history. And there are many. This is 
one of my favorite tropes. I know I'm not alone in that, but I especially like the, you know, the Ron and Hermione dynamic. So if that's what you're looking for, I would go right now and watch My Cousin Vinny, which has quite possibly the best bickering couple (laughs) in any movie ever. Um, I don't know if you would call it a a rom-com. I guess it technically is, but, you know, the couple's together at the beginning. They're together at the end. They don't break up at any point in the middle. So, you know, it's not the rom-com in the traditional sense. It's much more of a court drama, but it is so funny. And the performances are electric and the, um, the bickering sexual tension is excellent. So go check out My Cousin Vinny. I also wanted to suggest another classic film to go check out if this is a genre you're interested in, but haven't watched a lot of. And so my... Classic suggestion is, or more classic suggestion, is the movie Paper Moon, which is from the 70s, from the early 70s, and it stars Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, who were a father-daughter duo, and it is a travel movie. It's another sort of journey story, but instead of being about a couple, it's about a father and his young daughter. He finds out he has a seven-year-old daughter he didn't know about when her mother dies, and he gets stuck with her. But he is a traveling con man, essentially. He sells people (laughs) Bibles for more than they're worth and tricks people out of money at stores on the road. And this is what he does. So then he suddenly is stuck with this precocious, like, six-and-a-half-year-old or whatever she is um, in the car with him along for the ride. And it's very clever. It's got a lot of the same kind of witty banter and shenanigans and hilarity ensuing while they're on the road. Um, but without the awkward gendered politics quite so much. And the little girl in it actually won an Oscar for her performance. She was the youngest person to have ever won an acting Oscar. I think she still is. Just, it's a lot of fun. So check out Paper Moon if you want something a little more sort of old-fashioned style that you haven't checked out before. So those are my antidotes. Janelle, what have you got for us? Uh, Similarly, Eliza, I was trying to think about classic films that I love since, as I said, I love um, the films. I love pre-1940 cinema. Um, It's just... It was just such a beautiful time in filmmaking where people were doing a lot of cool, like, experiments. And uh, this movie, and especially its lighting and the kind of good romantic moments, made me think of uh, F.W. Murnau's classic uh, film Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans from 1927, also a pre-Hays Code movie. Mm -hmm. Um, What I love about this film is that it's not only just, like, visually gorgeous, it's one of the most visually beautiful movies I've ever seen, Um, but it also has this really painful, complex, morally gray, but also romantic plot that goes in a direction that you're not going to expect. I mean, it, it, the plot could be plucked directly from sort of like a gritty A24, like melodrama from today, like from a movie that was released this year. Uh, it's about, Mm -hmm. you know, a a man who is convinced to try and kill his wife and then has a change of heart. Uh, And it's just stunning. And if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough, even if you watch it with the sound off, which doesn't matter because it's a silent film. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, go find a stream of Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. So uh, let us know in the comments on any of our social media what movies you would recommend. We always want to add to our list as well as everyone else's. Especially since, like, I don't know, do you guys watch movies from the 30s? Do you? Tell us. Have you seen these movies we're covering this month? I haven't seen most of them. I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be good. We've got some fun ones coming up, so stick around. All right, Eliza. Thank you. Thank you, Janelle. Bye, everyone. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com/romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com, not us, not anyone. See, See you, you next, next time. time. Start from kissing and making up.